Welcome to episode 197 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Thursday 9th of August 2018. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the Spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed of BikeBiz.com and I'm happy to report that I fixed the RSS feed I complained about the last time. Uh, so those that wait for an auto download from iTunes or similar to get these shows will have had two missing episodes downloaded at once last week. Today's show features an interview with Guitar Ted, one of the key popularizers of gravel riding in the US. And then I steer closer to home by interviewing Jack Stevens, who saved a woman on a bike in London from being crushed under the wheels of a heavy goods vehicle. He filmed the incident. It went viral. And then the video was picked up by a British newspaper, which, in a bizarre tweet, blamed the cyclist. Tour de France commentator Ned Bolting called out the Metro newspaper for that duff framing. And I spoke to him about it. I've also got the apology from the Metro newspaper's social media manager. But before all that, here's my conversation with Guitar Ted. I am, I'm, I'm with Guitar Ted. Now, we've already agreed that we're going to call Guitar Ted Guitar Ted, even though Guitar Ted isn't Guitar Ted's real name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, yeah, your real name is Mark. However, yes. we are going to stick because on social media... Uh, you are known as Guitar Ted. So before we do anything else, why are you known as Guitar Ted? Well, that's a story that goes way back, Carlton. Uh, also, thanks for having me on, by the way. Um, yeah, back in the 70s, when I was growing up in the United States here, my father was a factory worker, and his big thing back then was that you needed to buy American because these foreign goods were no good. Kind of sounds like today, but I, anyway, I, I wasn't going to go there. I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> it it has some uh, connections to that, but um, so in 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 an effort to please my father, uh, I was trying to find music that was uh, not not from a foreign country, put it that way, and uh, and I would preferred the heavier sort of rock and roll music and. I gravitated towards uh, a guitar player from Detroit at the time named Ted Nugent. So he was American. So I started listening to his music in the 70s. And I listened to it almost to the exclusive exclusivity that my friends began calling me Ted. Okay. Because I was so connected to that at that time. So that kind of stuck through the years. And that's how I got that, that moniker. And do you and play I, guitar? I was going to mention I actually do play guitar. Right. So. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I have several of them. So, okay, so got that cleared up. Now you've worked in bike shops and stuff, I and mean, you've kind of been hanging around the bike industry for quite a while, haven't you? 
Yes, I uh, started working in the industry as a shop mechanic in 1993, and I've been in and out of it ever since. And what are we going to say? How do you hang out in it right now? Uh, well, I do two things. I'm still a shop mechanic. I still do that part-time. And then my other job is doing reviewing and um, writing for my site, writinggravel.com. I used to do mountain bike stuff, uh, reviewed that stuff for several years. And uh, I also put on and organize events here in the United States that are mostly centered around gravel. So gravel is definitely why I wanted to talk to you, because you were the person long, long before gravel became I mean, gravel is big in the industry, as you know, uh, you know, no, no bike manufacturer can can go to a trade show now without having 10 gravel bikes. It's that yeah. kind of big. So but you were the person because we, we, we chatted on the spokesman um, podcast with David, with the crew. Um, I'm going to be guessing here. I should have gone back in the archives and looked, but I think it was at least ten years ago, because the, the the probably even eleven years ago. And oh, yeah, gravel was, was 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 then was was in its infancy, and you were the first yes. person who I heard discussing this new thing called gravel, of where <laughs> you went out on your bike and you, you, it was like a road bike, and you went. Well, yeah. Why am I describing this? You you tell me what what is gravel? <laughs> well, uh, it's the um... It's the in-between margins between road biking and mountain biking. That's how I like to describe it, because you have the on-pavement activity, which we're all quite familiar with. We have the off-road activities, which we're all quite familiar with, with the fat tires and the knobs and suspension and everything. And then the margins in-between is what got to be called gravel. I'm a little bit uh, reluctant to use that term a lot anymore because i think it's limiting but back in the day when i talked to you that's how we knew it uh, many of our uh, roads here are gravel in fact in iowa the state that i live in uh, has over seventy thousand miles of gravel and dirt roads and m many of the years uh previous to the gravel boom they weren't being used for cycling which i thought was kind of a crazy thing because why not i mean it's out there to do and so uh, we started organizing rides and events on it, and um, people got attracted to it because it was away from the busy high-speed traffic. Uh, you don't have the dangers that you normally would encounter on a paved road, and it wasn't as difficult to enjoy as, say, a mountain bike um, trail, which you would have to travel some distance to get to at least in the Midwest. So it became something that you go right out your back door and do, and it was safe and it was fun and, and exciting. So that's where it got its roots here in the Midwest. So in percentage terms, uh, how much is, is Iowa with uh, tarmac, with asphalt on its roads, and how much is gravel? So just roughly. Yeah, uh, well, we're a little less than 50,000 miles of paved roads in this state and over 70,000 miles of unpaved roads in this state. And keep in mind that a lot of the, that uh, paved stuff we cannot ride because it's interstate highway or it's just crazy busy roads that you would, wouldn't dream of riding your bicycle on. So uh, there's vast amounts of unpaved roads out there that we can use that just it just dwarfs the mileage that we have that's paved. So that becomes a no-brainer, doesn't it? It's just there's there's lots of this out there in your part of the world. Of course, you're going to be wanting to get out there. But when when were people 
like in the mountain biking world where, you know, uh, there was a clunker and then people started making specific bikes for that kind of, of downhill riding. And then we've got the evolution of mountain bikes. What, 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 is, what is the equivalent in, in gravel riding when people started actually not just having standard road bikes, they started doing different things? Yeah, I, I think you can look at it from two different ways. You can look at it from the standpoint of like the clunker fellows. They they were taking what was available and piecing it together. And so there was a lot of that going on right away in the early years. Uh, back when I talked to you 11 years ago, that was going on then. The industry, on the other hand, uh, didn't really start getting into it until around 2012, I would say, would be the turning point when you started to see brands bringing specific gravel or all-road rigs to like shows like Interbike. So when, when that did start happening, in my head, I'm just thinking Guitar Ted. <laughs> you know, that's like, oh, that's what Guitar Ted was talking about. It was all these these bikes that he's talking about, and that'll never come across, you know, globally. That's just that's just Iowa. That's just the states which have got lots and lots of these gravel roads. But it mm. has taken over the whole world. It's just it's just gone everywhere. Are you kind of surprised that it became a category that got that big? Uh, in a word, yes. Um, but when I look back on it, I, I see that I shouldn't have been quite so surprised because, you know, let's look at the United Kingdom where you live, Carlton. There is a lot of bridleways. And people have been riding those for years and years and years. They just didn't have a name for it specifically. Well, now they have gravel bikes or all-road bikes, so they can, they can go do those. I believe that you used to call those kind of Audax rides, didn't you? Is that wasn't think, that a term? And no, they, that, that's kind of long distance on a road. The closest equivalent okay. would be and this is nineteen fifty-four time. It would be Rough Stuff Fellowship, right? So it would right. Be called Rough Stuff where yes. you get the, the old guys, I guess in those days they were young guys, uh, would go out and they would ride crazy Lake District passes and then mm -hmm. walk actually with their bikes. So there wasn't actually that much riding. You know, They would ride to the off-road, but then not actually ride on the off-road itself. So I wouldn't okay. say it's exactly equivalent because you know we haven't mm -hmm. got the same distance of... Mm -hmm of i mean gravel roads that 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 you have and that's mm. why it's obviously perfect for you uh -huh. but yeah we had something called rust Stuff fellowship which is 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 getting there and there were people doing the same or similar idea to that in uh, california oregon um job sprant is you know probably most famous for that um and then there were people all over the world i mean you, a lot of people point to the early tour riders that were doing the pyrenees <laughs> and the alps on gravel roads yep, and so th this this sort of thing was happening everywhere for many many years it just never had an organized uh, movement grassroots movement or name for it until recently so i don't claim any ownership to the beginnings of it i'm just one of the people that uh was there when it caught on in the modern day so that's that's how i, I look at that you managed to grab a pretty good url there though. well <laughs> yeah you probably could um but it it's it's uh it's something that definitely got going here in the midwest before it got going uh everywhere else i mean when i started cataloging events in 2008 ish uh, most of the events I knew about were Midwestern events in the, in the Midwest of the United States. But as I dug deeper into it, there were other events that 
you know, they were sisters to gravel grinding. They and it had been happening for quite a long time, but they just weren't called a gravel grinder event like Paris to Ancaster and in Canada, which had been going on for years before I ever did Trans Iowa. So um, that's that's another thing that um, became discovered and became part of the movement. And then uh, there were training rides that were going on in California, like the Belgian Waffle Ride, which has now a great organized race. Uh, it originated as a training ride. So there were things like that that were going on years before the whole gravel movement started. So, um, yeah, you, you can say that it started here. Uh, but in reality, I believe that it's been going on all over the world. It just has you know, been all drawn in under this banner called gravel or all road or whatever you want to call it. So <laughs> that's the way I see it. So th- there are people who are cynical about uh, this and, and just think of it as something that the, the bike industry is using as a, you know, a quiver bike type thing where mm. it's, you're just selling more bikes to pretty much the same people. So the, the, the same person who's got a mountain bike, a road bike has now got to have a gravel bike. Mm-hmm. Do you see in, in your mind's eye, do you see uh, that is is partially true or do you see people who are completely different coming into into gravel riding uh i see both actually i don't i don't mean to be vague but <laughs> actually i was giving some thought to this before our call um you know there's two th- schools of thought there's a school of thought that the bicycle industry has an evil intention to break us down into ni- niches and sell us many many bikes because that's the only way they can survive the other, the other side of that coin, which nobody really talks about, is if we all had the perfect bicycle, we wouldn't be selling any new bikes. We, so we, we would have the one that worked for everything, which is obviously not, not the case. So somewhere in between is where the truth lies. Uh, I, I see, as far as people participating, I see a lot of new people coming in to cycling because of this genre. Um, you know, you can go to several gravel events, and a lot of the promoters are – painstakingly taking making efforts to bring in women for instance uh, families there's lots of smaller rides that are geared around families so you're bringing in the youth into it um, there's actually a high school gravel cycling league being organized now so as you know you've probably heard of the nika the the off-road version of that mm-hmm. so so you know not everybody has mountains you know so where there are gravel roads that that uh, gravel uh cycling high school league makes more sense i think so that's bringing in new people so th- there's there's truth on both sides of it sure you know you can ride your mountain bike on gravel and you don't really need to ever buy a gravel bike if you're happy with that i mean any bike's a gravel bike right mm-hmm. but you know, but it's like uh anything else in the sporting world there's always a better tool for the job and i believe that the all-road gravel type bikes do a lot of things better than a straight-up mountain bike or a straight-up road bike mm-hmm. and the industry is doing the right thing then so are, are we seeing the right kind of product out there or do we still have some way to go? I think the, a lot of the product is right. I think a lot of the marketing of that product isn't right. Um, in my mind, uh, in, I, I might, I may be the only person that thinks this, but in my mind, the bicycle industry has constantly, uh, focused on racing far too much. And, you know, we're not bringing in the average ordinary person, uh, which is what I saw when gravel started getting 
popular here in the Midwest, we saw all sorts of people start coming out to events that that weren't doing events at all before. And I think the bike industry is missing that point in that, um, you know, we want, you know, to, to borrow a phrase from quality bicycle products, we want more butts on bikes. And that's going to grow the pie to, to um, you know, for the industry. And it's also going to make us healthier and all these other benefits that cycling brings. But, you know, to get people out of their cars and, and have them get on bikes is difficult here in the United States as it is in many other places because the paved roads are dangerous and there's not a lot of bike paths. So where can you ride? Well, if you point out the fact that there's all of these roads out here that have very little traffic and are very scenic and a lot of fun to ride on. And there's lots of events that you can enjoy and, and share this experience with other people. I think that's a, a, a message that's not being uh, told by the bike industry that I think would help the bike industry uh, get more people on bikes. And are you seeing more regions, more municipalities, more townships, whatever, are they marketing their gravel roads to this 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 new thing or is it this is a it's a bike industry thing and it's a complete surprise to to localities that all these gravel roads are getting used by these these cyclists i think carl and i think absolutely uh towns and villages are are grabbing a hold of this uh movement this grassroots movement and they're running with it and they're actually there's some uh places where economically it's really turned around the region so let, just to pick on one that a lot of people are familiar with uh we we can take the, the dirty kansas 200 which happens in emporia kansas uh, many people are familiar with it. it's a very large race now it wasn't a very large race to begin with i was at the first one where there were only 34 of us riders and the townspeople had no idea what was going on uh emporia at that time uh wasn't um a thriving uh community um they have a university there they have uh, a big disc golf tournament thing that happens there so it wasn't like they were dead but you know they they were like a lot of midwestern towns it was kind of a sleepy little place that didn't have a lot going on and the dirty kansas has brought that town uh, not only that event but they've grown uh in, in, into other areas and they've created businesses there uh centered around cycling and the townspeople have been a Oh. when the dirty Kansas started. So that's just one good example of what uh, this movement has done for the economics and the overall health of a town, to be quite honest. Uh, there's other little towns I hear about all the time that reach out to me uh, as far as people that are starting events and they're, they're wanting some advice. And I always tell them to get your town involved because they're looking for things like this to bring people in to spend money and uh, to bolster tourism. So uh, I just got asked about uh, a little town in Iowa that wants to start doing something like this just last weekend. So it, it's going on all over, and I think it has a big impact on on the, the smaller communities that host these events. So that, that bodes well for the future. If it's not just an industry thing, it's a, it's a, it's a regional thing, and they're picking up on it, then those kind of more events will get organized, uh, more more movement a, a, around this 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 sector will, will happen. Yeah. So you, you you see a bright future. 
Yeah, I, I, I really do. And, you know, to be honest, Carlton, I don't know that the bike industry could actually do that. I mean, it's a grassroots thing that's it's got more to do with other stuff than just bicycles. And, uh, you know, these these communities that start these events uh, attract people who aren't cyclists to kind of help out and be volunteers. Well, they get you know, they start rubbing shoulders with these cyclists and seeing what's going on. And they, then they get into it and they start uh, cycling themselves. So the industry benefits from that because these people need bikes and they need the gear to do the bicycling with. And uh, otherwise they wouldn't be doing it. So uh, I, I think there's a bright future. I know with our site, ridinggravel.com, we still catalog a, a calendar of events. And just the other day, I noticed we had over 500 listed. So that's uh, up from last year, which we were in the 400s, and it was up over the year before. So it's just been trending upward ever since I started, uh, you know, tracking this stuff down. So I, I, I don't see any end in sight now. I mean, obviously, at some point, it probably will crest and, and level off, but I just don't see that happening yet. Um, well, where can people, I mean, you have kind of told people where they can, they can, they can get stuff from, but how about social media? I mean, is it going to be as obvious as I think it's going to be on your social media handle? Yeah. Well, Guitar Ted, um, is on Twitter at Guitar Ted 1961. Um, I'm on, uh, Facebook, uh, at writinggravel.com. Um, you know, uh, I also do a blog, uh, Guitar Ted Productions, which is a lot of people reach out here to find out what's going on locally and my thoughts about the bike industry. So, and all those are all platforms where I'm active. Thanks to Guitar Ted there. And now here's David with a word about our show sponsor. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And hi, everybody. It's David. And I am here, well, you know why I'm here. I'm here to talk about our longtime loyal and fantastic sponsor, Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Remember, that's J-E-N-S-O-N usa.com. Now, what's Jensen USA? Well, if you don't know by now, you should. Jensenusa.com is the place where you're going to find all of the things that you need for your complete cycling lifestyle, complete bikes, mountain bikes, road bikes, gravel grinders, everything in between, components, apparel, accessory, tools, shoes, really gifts, everything you can imagine that you would need for your cycling lifestyle. And we're not talking about off-branded stuff. We are talking about name brands that you know, love, and need for your cycling lifestyle. You're going to find those name brands at incredible low prices, and that's all going to be coupled with unparalleled customer service. If you haven't been to Jensen USA before, I urge you to do it right now and every time you need something for cycling because they're going to have it at great prices and you're going to be very, very satisfied with their customer service. Go ahead and check them out. That's at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Our thanks to Jensen USA for supporting the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast, and our thanks to you for supporting our sponsor, Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, back to you. Thanks, David. And now for the sadly all too familiar case of a British newspaper. It doesn't have to be British, of course. It could be an American, Canadian, Australian. It, it seems to be anyway. Newspapers in many places in the world. Uh, getting it wrong on cycling. Here's Hero, an IT worker, Jack Stevens. 
I'm currently talking to, well, I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say somebody who saved somebody's life. <laughs> uh, you're laughing there, Jack, but uh, so I'm talking to, to, to Jack Stevens. And uh, at the end of July, you did something that I say and many other people say on social media, say you saved somebody's life. So just briefly describe what happened on that, that July day. Yeah, sure. Well, that's it. It was instinctive, to be honest with you, Carlton. Um, there was a moment uh, as I cycle to work every day and have been for the last five years um, from South London up to North London in Angel. And uh, I was just coming up to Exmouth Market Junction, which is a notoriously busy and quite a tricky junction to navigate as a, as a, a sort of vulnerable road user, etc., and I saw a lorry coming up the road towards me in the outside lane with its left-hand indicator on. And it was approaching at a, a relatively good speed. Um, the lights, after he just crossed the, uh, the crossing, the lights had just switched to orange and he was just swinging over to the left. And I'd noticed that on his inside was a cyclist, um, a lady who must have been in her 30s, uh, who was completely unaware of the fact that this lorry was about to turn across her. And I just started shouting uh, in the blind hope that the truck driver would hear me or she'd hear me or just this situation that seemed to be unravelling in front of me would would cease to, to, to unravel. Um, I know that there are lots of occasions in London where people um, meet their horrible demise underneath the the wheels of trucks in this in this very similar circumstances to these and um i just started shouting and just basically stopped and he stopped i think thought i was having a go at him for something i don't i just don't think either of them were aware of each other um so yeah i just i just basically asked the guy to stop so he was turning uh yeah if, if i mean the I'll get on to it in a minute why this became like um, it got its second wind. But he, he was he was definitely turning. It certainly looked as though he didn't know that that cyclist was there. Even when he man- made the manoeuvre, it looked like an awkward place for him to be turning his vehicle anyway. Yeah, for sure. I, I have no doubt that that's the first time he'd driven that route and that he was following a set of instructions. It's. I don't think that if you were... An HGG, HGV driver, and you know this is their job professionally. I don't think anyone goes out on any daily basis to endanger other road users, right? I, I give people hopefully enough of a benefit of the doubt for that, but I suspect he was given a set of instructions to get from point A to point B, and it's a it's a tricky junction to navigate turning left, even if you're in a small um, a small vehicle, let alone one that's you know 30, 35, 40 feet long. Um, and it, yes, it had rear wheel steering as well, but it was unable to make that manoeuvre without doing a kind of a three or four point turn. Yes, it looked it looked kind of awkward, yeah. even without the cyclist in there. Now, yeah. it, it did. Um, so that was at the end of July when this happened. Yeah. It got a second wind because uh, the, the video clearly went went a, a bit viral on social media uh, when you posted it. Uh, and I will post uh, your video of the incident but then it got picked up um i don't know whether it's got picked up by other uh, places but it certainly got picked up by metro so a, a a uk um freebie newspaper and they tweeted and they tweeted as though it was the cyclist at fault 
and then all you've got to do is just play this video and it's like is it just screamingly obvious to cyclists <laughs> that no of yeah. course it wasn't uh, her fault and of course what what I've been saying for many years, especially when this 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 topic comes up, where you know cyclist gets killed by uh, HGV uh, driver, uh, then comes up, well, you know, cyclists shouldn't get into that dangerous space. And I always say, but very often they're put into that space by the very fact that motorist has overtaken. So if the motorist didn't overtake, chances are, so the cyclists don't generally always go up the inside of trucks. I think they're sensible. Yeah. in the most part. Yeah, but this woman was not going up the inside of this truck. That truck driver put her in that position. So it was the Metro framing that got this second wind of this this, this tweet. So what, what do you think to that framing? I, I don't agree with the way in which they used it at all. Um, I've looked back at that footage and I think if where they've trimmed it off and started the clip um, in their... Uh, kind of release of that video it, it doesn't show enough of the context really in the lead up and and actually i don't think i even saw enough of the context in the lead up to be able to say exactly what was going through the minds or through their or, or was entering the eyes of either participant it was both of them were approaching the junction at at the same speed um the cyclist may well have been a little bit in front at, at some point but would have had no expectation for a vehicle of that size to be coming across her from that outside. And that that framing to me, whether you're pointing blame, I kind of feel uncomfortable with the idea of pointing blame at anyone in some of these situations because it's without being sat in that position myself, I don't know what you can see and what you can't see. But you're absolutely right in that at the moment, cyclists, vulnerable road users, are put in positions where they have to coexist with these huge um, vehicles that really aren't easy to drive. They're not easy to navigate through these small streets and the infrastructure in London is so appalling, especially at junctures like this, which is off the beaten track enough that people haven't invested any money in segregated cycle lanes at that point. And clearly nothing bad happens with great enough frequency for people to look at it too closely. So for her to for, for them to assert that she could have any control over that situation i think is wrong and i think is victim blaming um to assert that that truck driver knew everything about what was going on and let's face it we're only human and people do make mistakes it's just when these tiny vulnerable road users and these large road users come together and humans are operating one of them and people do make mistakes the results can be tragic and it's how do you minimize that risk how do you take people out of those situations where they can't they they, they don't get themselves into a position of danger now let, let's just uh, sort of congratulate the driver in in some respects in that yes he got himself into an incredibly awkward and dangerous potentially dangerous position but when you shouted at him and it, it's kind of good that it was like a, a heat wave and that he had his window down so he yeah. heard you so there was a slight potential there for an altercation. He, I assume, thought that you were shouting at him that you were he was cutting across your path. He then momentarily stops and, and like says something to you. You then say, no, 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 there's a woman there. You're about to crush her uh, in so many words. And then he mm. thanks you. He says, so that clear, he didn't see her because yeah. he thanked you. He said, oh, I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was like it was cheers, a, mate, yeah. it, cheers. It was it was a definite thanks there. He hadn't seen that woman. 
So that's why I started this by saying you've, you've definitely saved somebody's life there because if we've seen so many of these videos, unfortunately, where that cyclist is caught in that position and, and clearly will not survive something like that. So you saved that woman's life for sure. Uh, it, was, it was just instinctive. I don't think I'd be able to recover from witnessing something like that so close. So, you know, it's probably more selfish than anything. But it's, you know, it's it's not a situation anyone wants to see unfolding in, in their eyes. And something that I was thinking about as well with this with this driver is the two scenarios really of how we got into that situation is one, if he he the first situation, the first way I can assume things unravel was that he wasn't aware of her. He didn't know she was there. And my my question then is why? Why didn't he know that that she was there? Are there because I, I'm I'm informed by a lot of people on Twitter that have responded to this that there actually blind spots don't exist in trucks anymore, mm-hmm. and that there's a a whole raft of safety measures put in place as part of being part of the kind of fours accredited um, uh, haulage scheme um, that that try and prevent people from ever slipping into a blind spot and there's a couple of guys that posted some really interesting videos that are both out of date and they show you that there are blind spots and then some more recent ones which show there aren't so if he wasn't aware she was there why wasn't he because if there's something wrong with the cab or something tricky that you know means that there is a blind spot then there shouldn't be one and then the second scenario is that he was aware and just assumed that she was going to give way or assumed that that she had right of way and they're, they're the only two really things that i can think of and those are the those are both questions that i posed to the to the um the hgv operator as well so i reported this incident uh, to the operator i won't name them um, here it's quite clear from the video but um their head of operations went and investigated the vehicle there was nothing wrong with the vehicle there wasn't any reason for it to be um for there to be any kind of uh, issues that said it had the audible buzzing sound etc and so if he didn't see her there was a reason for that maybe he didn't check close enough i don't know and yes people do make mistakes what concerned me and what i stated to the to the um the, the, the haulage company was the speed with which he approached that turn was inappropriate whether you know the turn or you don't know the turn you can see how tight it is. He knew that he had to be in the outside lane to try and make the turn, and he approached it with far too much speed. You can see the violence with which, when he slams the brakes on, the cab moves about, and I felt very uncomfortable at the idea that he thought it was appropriate to take that corner at that speed. That's not to say he was trying to be vindictive about it, but mm. it, was just, it just seemed too quick. And what has what the haulage company, what have they come back to you and said? So they said that they've investigated the truck, that they've spoken to the driver, um, and that they were unable to tell me of any outcomes of those conversations, but that it has been investigated. They also believed that had the incident resulted in any particular um, uh, any particular damage um, to that cyclist themselves, that they would have seen it as a 70-30 responsibility. 70% the truck, 30% the cyclist. Mm-hmm. And I, I look at the cyclist as well. Uh, and I, I really, I really don't, I, I don't, I never wanted to use this to push an agenda or anything like that. And I look at the cyclist, she is absolutely unaware that there is anything on her right hand side. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that she should be. That's not to say that anyone should expect a vehicle to be cutting across them from the right hand side. But the surprise and the lateness of realizing that truck was coming towards her, she was in another world. 
and when I said to her afterwards, are you okay? She just sort of shrugged and it was completely, she was completely nonplussed by the whole thing. So I just, I, I don't know what was going through her mind in that situation. You know, I don't know what was going through what he was able to see or not. It just seemed like this perfect storm of circumstances that could have resulted in something really, really bad. I, I agree with you that she absolutely, she should have been a bit more aware there. Of course, you can't expect, say, if we're going to get kids on on bikes, oh, of course, we can't expect yeah. everybody to be incredibly mammal, um, vehicular sure. cyclist, whatever phrase you want to use, to be that incredibly aware because it's the built environment that's a, a fault here, not not people not paying attention all the time. Um, so you did go up to it. In the video, you can see you went up to it. You clearly have, have turned right where you weren't going to be turning right. You, you wanted to go straight ahead. And there's, I guess there's more of the video that you haven't played of you then just part company and then she goes away or she's so distraught she's on the, 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 the footway. What, what, what exactly happened afterwards? She, she was so nonplussed. I just I cycled off. I said to her, are you okay? And she just shrugged at me, didn't say a word, literally pulled that face as if to say, yeah, fine, why? Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, that was it. I just rode off because I just thought, oh, well, if she, she's clearly in no distress whatsoever. Um, I, do, I don't think she realised quite how close she'd come, maybe. Um, and then I'm like, well, maybe am I, am I blowing it out of proportion here? But... You know, looking back, I wasn't actually, I wasn't as shaken up by it until I saw the footage back mm -hmm. and saw the speed with which he was approaching that corner. Um, because it just, if he'd approached it, continued to approach it with that speed, it, there's no way that she would have been able to get out of the way at all. She wouldn't have been able to turn left in any particular um, time that would have made a difference to their trajectories. And yeah, it was... But she didn't care. She she seemed completely nonplussed. Yes. Now, uh, the framing that the, the, the that Metro took on this is kind of odd because mm. if you want a, a tweet to go viral, then you could have just said, you know, hero cyclist saves, you know, uh, damsel in distress. And that could have made that tweet go viral. They didn't have to frame it in this weird victim-blaming sort of way. So clearly there's a problem there with their social media skills for a start unless they kind of wanted to wind up cyclists like let's put out this tweet that will clearly wind people up and will get a lot of attention because it has got attention because it's now been deleted so yeah. ned bolting uh waded in uh, the tour de france commentator and and metro have now they've now seen the error of their ways but it did take somebody like ned to actually get them deleted because they were taking a lot of uh, heat over this before ned uh, uh, waded in hundreds and hundreds of replies of people saying you know how dare you use this this video and frame it as if the cyclist was was in the wrong and and that is i don't i don't mind if people say you know what this is a tricky this is a tricky circumstances here this is something that i don't know what the right answer is but to immediately apportion blame on a vulnerable road user, I feel is is jumping to a conclusion that should not ever be reached. Um, and 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 the fact that Ned came out and has said something so plainly and saying I, I will not work with a paper that supports this kind of victim blaming and this kind of um, this kind of framing of incidents like this without not trying to develop a discussion about it. And it's interesting. 
I saw that their, the, the Metro head of social media, um, a guy called Jay Jaffa, um, replied to Ned and said, hi, Ned, can you follow me back so that you can, so that I can have a DM conversation with you about this? And Ned said, well, look, you've got my email. Your organization has my email address. Send me an email. I replied this morning to Jay Jaffa and just said, hi, Jay, I took the video and I was the one that shouted. Um, if you've got any questions or want to discuss anything, then let me know. And he's, as we've been on this call, just sent me a response. And I think it's quite telling because he said, hey there, thanks for the tweet. I'd be really interested to hear your opinion as a cyclist on what went wrong in the clip you recorded. And I think there is the problem. These people have no experience of what it's like to be a vulnerable road user on London's roads. And as a result, will frame it from the motorist perspective Mm. because that is the default. That is the default on the roads nationwide, I think, is that you are a motorist first and you are another kind of road user second. And if you don't have an experience of this, then it's very hard to understand the kind of behaviours that you need to employ in order to get from A to B safely on two wheels or even on your feet. So there are some clear learning points from all sorts of different angles, from social media angles, from from that what that woman should have been doing on the bike at that point, certainly what the, the, the HG, uh, G driver should have been doing. And uh, newspapers for if they're going to be employing people uh, who've got big social media followings, you're going to expect a, a comeback if you do something stupid. Um, so let's before we came uh, and started recording here, you, you came out and said, "Look, I, I'm not a campaigner. I'm not a you know somebody with a big profile in in you know cycle advocacy circles. I'm just somebody who rides to to, to work." So just briefly tell us a bit about yourself. So. Um... I uh, I ride for a a London club um, and started racing at the beginning of the year and um, I've been a keen cyclist and a commuter for five years in London so I've only been up the sharp end of the stick in terms of riding out of anger on closed circuits and closed roads etc for probably really about six months I started racing in January um, and my commute is my favourite part of my day I absolutely adore cycling through london uh, my commute at the moment i've just moved my commute takes me all the way along embankment uh, it takes me past the houses of parliament previously it took me past st paul's um it's taken me through hyde park there is no better way i think to see london and sometimes i just have to look, remind myself to look up and it is for me it's I'm able to get a workout in. I'm able to stay fit and healthy without having to be sat on a train. I'm not good with people being in my personal space, which in London mm-hmm. um, on trains, etc., is is uh, is a commodity that is in short supply. Personal space, I think. And um, I've been hit a couple of times. Uh, one of those was my fault. Um, another one of those was not my fault. Funnily enough, only one of those incidents actually involved a uh, um, a car. The other time, it involved a cyclist. So. You know, it's, I, am un, I am aware of the dangers of London roads, and I think that it is very telling that I find that that if you, uh, looking at the, the demographic of people who um, are unfortunately KSI'd and killed or seriously injured on London roads as cyclists, that they are not as quick and not as confident on the roads as perhaps other road users. So you interestingly mentioned the mammals earlier on. I mean, I'm, I'm 28 years old, so I'm not quite yet in the middle age part of that mammal, but I, I wear Lycra. I don't want to ruin my clothes by getting them sweaty. And I sweat a lot, Carlton, <laughs> especially in this heat. So it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if you're not quick, 
then the roads currently aren't designed for you because you're not out of the way quick enough from road users who become impatient, etc. And I've seen certainly in the last couple of years that 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 tension between road users and um, motorists and other road users has really kicked up a gear. It seems like the kind of the the, the louder both voices get it's just the case of everyone's just shouting at each other now i get close past abused on virtually every ride i go on and the only time that doesn't happen is when i'm on cycle super highways you know um i was going to say mention that because you are now so you mentioned the part of your commute there and you're talking about the embankment well you, you got a fairly nice percentage there of of protection yeah absolutely and it is brilliant i love it some people treat it like a racetrack. Other cyclists sometimes treat it like a racetrack. And I have just as many close passes with other cyclists who are overtaking at inappropriate times on that cycle superhighway as I do cars trying to overtake inappropriately through Wimbledon Village, for example. So, you know, it's it goes both ways in that respect is people don't quite show enough respect for each other, I think, on the roads. But there's the the parts where we are segregated, I feel much safer and actually i take my commute less seriously as a result of that um because it 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 not treating it like a racetrack and not trying to go too quickly means that i'm getting from a to b really safely i know that it's not going to be the quickest way for me to go there so what's the point in racing it and i actually really enjoy that that embankment commute that's probably one of my favorite bits of the commute actually Mm -hmm. and jack just tell us uh what you're called on twitter and where we can find you on, on maybe on other certain platforms too. Yeah, sure. So I am just Jeevens um, on everything. Um, so uh, on, on YouTube, I'm Jeevens Stevens. Um, but it's, yeah, uh, just Jeevens on everything. Um, that's Instagram and Twitter. I don't really use anything else um, other than that. Um, so, yeah, that's me. Thanks to Jack Stevens. As we mentioned, the Metro newspaper has now deleted the badly framed tweet. Here's the explainer behind this deletion from the newspaper's head of social, Jay Jaffa. We made a mistake with the portrayal of the video, says Jay. It wasn't framed correctly and this was something an editorial review picked up post-publication. Unfortunately, this wasn't changed, removed in a prompt manner, leading to Ned highlighting the video on Twitter. It's far from an ideal situation, as we do try exceptionally hard to avoid situations such as these. They have happened in the past. Mistakes in tone, judgment happen. But on the whole, I like to think our coverage is more balanced and more responsible than we were here. And Jay added, I am more than aware of the difficulties the cycling community face on the roads in London. And this is a big part of the reason I've been extending my apologies to those who were upset by our coverage of the video. Uh, Jay went on to say he would also be talking to Ned Bolting about the matter. Now, I spoke with Ned while he was waiting to get a flight back to the UK from France. Yes, he was still there. And yes, I also asked him about his one man show. Where are you flying to or from? In the year. I'm finally heading home from France. I've been on holiday for the last 10 days in, yeah, in Jay, France. You're still in France? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I just need, I needed a bit of time to uh, decompress and do some writing and stuff. So um, I'm in Toulouse, about to fly home. Oh, well, very nice. When Are you physically at the airport? Yeah. Oh, yeah. when's your flight? In about an hour, so. Oh, okay. All good. 
So five minute talk. We can we can. You're not going to miss anything. Are you? Yes, come no problem, no problem. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, congratulations. <laughs> Metro seem to have got the message. In that they deleted the tweet. Well, yeah, they have gone, haven't they? Um, which was something of a surprise. Um, so I don't know if congratulations are in order because I find the whole thing rather dispiriting, to be perfectly honest. Mm. Um, but thank you anyway. <laughs> well, it's the framing of it, isn't it? It's the, it's the you you said it brilliantly. It's the, it's just the way they framed it that they really didn't know what they were doing in in tweeting it in that exact way. Yeah, and for me, no, exactly. And, and for me, it was some. I think it was just uh, you know the, the straw that broke the camel's back in some ways. You know, I I'm perennially called up by if you like mainstream media outlets to. to to kind of, I don't mind doing this. In, in many ways, it's quite an honour to be this, you know, this, one of the spokespeople for the cycling world. And invariably, you know, the, the only reason I'm asked to comment is because there are two thoughts abroad. One is all racing cyclists are dopers, aren't they? And the other, the other one is all all cyclists are, you know, pavement hogging, red light jumping hooligans. And um, I'm getting tired of it. And uh, it's it's. It's been an increasing trend over 10 years. It shows no sign of dissipating or abating. We seem um, <clears throat> powerless as a cycling community to turn around perceptions of how we are in the wider world. And um, this particular, you know, this, this particular really rather ordinary example of the genre, for me, was a little bit uncomfortably close to home. And uh, I didn't want to be associated with that any longer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Jay Jaffa, the social media manager, I'm assuming is the guy who's taken it down, and mm, well, presumably, I don't know. Yeah. It's presumably wants to talk to mm. you and, and just hopefully apologise. Well, um, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't haven't really had any contact other than a a, 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 a public message asking me to follow him or her so that we could, you know, swap direct messages, which I, I wouldn't totally comfortable with and since then i've not heard so mm. um you know that's that's as far as their response has gone to this point at least uh, they've taken it down and, <clears throat> and perhaps are feeling a little bit surprised by the reaction um you know you know but uh, in many ways that's all i think that's probably all we can expect from these outlets and i certainly don't want to uh contribute to any more clicks coming their way you know which is always a very difficult mm. rather nuanced balancing act we all have to kind of pick our way through in these situations of it mm, no totally <clears throat> do you think it's an anglo-saxon thing this anti-cyclist i mean you, do you get it in france in in in, in, a, in a similar way um i think there are elements of it i don't think it's a british problem but it's um you know it seems to have grown legs in in, in our in our culture way beyond uh, what you'd expect to find abroad i mean i've i've just spent six weeks in france and um I've ridden my bike on a semi-daily basis and encountered um, almost no hostility. I'm very used to that. And, um, and certainly in the media, um, cycling appears to be a much more you know, appreciated activity and sport. And uh, I'm just scratching my head, Carl, as to how we, you know, how, we, how we go about breaking out of the bounds we're in. I, mean, I think my former colleague, Chris Boardman, is one of the kind of few shining examples of how to talk outside of the bubble, you know, and, and um, we need more people like him, I think. Mm -hmm. 
And your show, um, so you're you're in Toulouse, and you're you're writing. When you said you were writing, you're writing parts of your show coming up. I'm writing the show. Yeah, I am. I am. I'm writing the show. I'm trying to anyway. Before I forget what happened at the Tour de France, which <laughs> and on a day by day basis, I seem to be suffering from more and more amnesia. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I was kind of making notes throughout my commentary assiduously on all the funny and bizarre stuff that happened over the three weeks of racing and. Uh, I'm trying to chop all that together into a couple of hours of entertainment on the on the stage. So that's that's exactly where I'm at right now. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's been good fun. Thanks to Ned Bolting there. This has been episode 197 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. Thanks for listening and thanks for subscribing to the show. We're rapidly approaching episode number 200. And David has requested that we try and make that into an anniversary show getting back as many of those who were on the first few shows way back in 2006. That's something to look forward to. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.